All right. Well, welcome again, uh, especially for those of you that are new or visiting. We're so glad you are here with us this morning. And um, I do have some family news before we head into our sermon. Um, the first one, exciting news, um, Sam and Tina, who are here, they just got engaged. And so let's give them a hand. Um, yeah, we're just so excited uh, for the both of you as you uh, continue on in this journey. Um, a, few, a few other news. I, I feel like just with announcements, I want to clarify something. So for the church-wide retreat, I know that the college, uh, some, many of the college students just came back. So we do have a special code for the college students where, um, you know, today is the end of the early bird registration. But because many of you have just come back, uh, we're extending that early bird for the college students only uh, with the discount code, code college. I'm very creative. Okay, so just type in college. If you're not a college student and you use that code, I don't know what to say. Uh, maybe you just really need the discount, and so I don't know. Anyways, um, again, so college students, if you want to join us for our church-wide retreat, uh, please use that code. Um, it will go until the end of our regular registration, which I believe is the end of October. Uh, next, you know, with the Serve SD, um, just, I just want to honor our outreach committee. They did a lot of work in praying and preparing and calling these organizations, doing some research so that our church can take steps towards engagement in our city. And so uh, we really hope that you will mark your calendars October 15th um, and that you'll be able to join us as we just learn what it means uh, to be a church that uh, really loves and cares for our city. Okay, I wanted to start things this morning with a really fun and exciting activity. Um, this morning, uh, well, actually not this morning, uh, earlier this week, one of our staff members uh, put a raffle ticket on the front left uh, leg of each chair. Uh, not, not everyone, only 20, 20 people. So can you look down at your seat and see if you're a lucky winner? If you, front left leg of the chair, okay? Anyone, anyone have a ticket? If you have a ticket, raise it up. Raise it up high. Okay, if you found a ticket, stand up, please. Let's, let's give them a hand. These are, the, these are our lucky winners. All right, and you, okay, you guys can have a seat. Your prize is you get VIP seats to our first service, 9 a.m. service for these coming weeks. Um, because as our UCSD students come back, we do need more space in our second service. So you guys are the lucky winners. Yeah, awesome. We'll see you at our 9 a.m. service. Joking aside, you guys are not actually obligated, but I really just wanted this to stick to your heads, okay? We do need more space in our second service. As, uh, as you can see, this room is uh, getting pretty full. So um, in these next couple of weeks, if you are able to wake up early, uh, not even that early, okay, um, you know, and attend our 9 a.m. service, that would really help us uh, with space as well, okay? All right, I'm counting on it. We need at least 20 people. That's why we put out 20 tickets, okay? All right, we are in the last part. If you weren't with us, and a lot of you have just been coming back, we are in the last part of our First John series. And next week, Pastor Peter, uh, he'll be leading us into a mini-series on um, how we be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. And we recently attended a conference, and it was just such a blessing. Um, I'm personally excited for this sermon series because, uh, really, it calls us to be apprentices who actually practice the way of Jesus. Not just people who learn and, and, and feel conviction, but that we put it into practice. And so that's ultimately what we desire to be as a church, that we would uh, really become followers, disciples of Jesus who live the way that he has taught us and led us. Uh, but this morning, I do get the privilege of closing out our First John series, and um, you know, to wrap up this series, I'm going to give a brief recap 
Um, the good thing is that there aren't many major points uh, that we've tackled because uh, the, the author of this letter, the Apostle John, he uses a writing style called amplification. And what that means is he only has a few major points, but he keeps coming back at it again and again at different angles, at different intensities in order to prove his points. And so this morning, I just want to cover a brief recap of what we've studied in the, the book of 1 John, uh, three main points that I hope you can just remember um, one thing that I hope you will memorize about the content of 1 John is actually from our first week. Now, as we study this letter together, uh, it's these three tests that we talk about uh, in this first chapter. Right belief, right action, and right posture. Okay, right belief, right action, and right posture. And these are three points that, again, John is coming back to again and again as a spiritual father to his spiritual children, that he's encouraging them and admonishing them and leading them towards becoming more like Jesus. And so let me briefly recap these three points. We see that John instructs the church to believe what is true. There are many false teachings of that time that were arising. These teachings that said, you know what, maybe Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh. Maybe he was just kind of like an, a ghost-like appearance, that he appeared to come in the flesh, but he didn't actually come in the flesh. And John refutes that. He says, no, I was an eyewitness. I was a disciple. I followed him. I saw him with my very own eyes. And John is refuting this false teaching and he's saying, um, believe what is true. Hold fast to what is true. John refutes these false claims and he encourages the church to believe what is true because he says, be weary of these false spirits, these false teachings, these false ideologies that are beginning to arise that seek to draw the children of God away from God himself. And so again, he encourages them to have the right belief and he encourages us as well to have right belief as well. We need to hold fast to what is true. John also instructs the church to act according to the right beliefs. That there needs to be a congruence between our beliefs and our actions. He points out that our faith, our identity as children is actually provable. There is an actionable and provable and tangible aspect of our faith. Those who claim to be children of God, we are to become more and more like him. In the areas of holiness, turning away from sin towards a life of godliness. He says those who claim to be children of God are to love one another as you have been loved by Jesus. And John reminds us we don't have to do this alone, that we have been given the Holy Spirit to lead us and transform us throughout the entire process. And lastly, John instructs the church to have the right posture. Have this posture of love. He points out that loving God is intertwined with loving one another. It's inseparable. He calls the church beloved. He says, you are beloved. This Greek word agapetoi is you have experienced the agape love of God yourself, and because you have experienced this, you ought to demonstrate that to one another. Again, if you didn't know, the agape love that we talk about, it's not tied to value, okay? Eros, love, in, in Greek, there's different ways to explain love. Eros love is one that is tied to value, right? One that says, you are valuable, and therefore I love you. Right? It doesn't have to be a personal relationship. It could be an item, like I love my car because it has value to me. But agape love is different. It says, because I love you, there's value in that. And so we are to experience this love, we are to receive this love, and we are to emulate and demonstrate this same kind of love towards one another. Now I could wrap up my sermon here because those three main points are just 
um, there's just a wealth of things that we need to work through, and 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 uh, it'll take an etern- uh, it'll take our entire life to really be able to practice and live this out. But John does have a few final encouragements and thoughts uh, that really uh, supplement these three points. So let's look at John's concluding remarks in this first letter. Now, at the start of this passage in uh, this morning, John once again reminds us, uh, those that he's writing to, that they can have confidence. He says, you can have confidence when you approach God. Again, contextually, John is writing as a spiritual father to his spiritual children. These church plants that are just just beginning to grow and begin to be planted, and, and they're still developing, and he's addressing these people who are just so confused. They're so worried. They're anxious because the context is they're people in their midst who are leaving and going after these false teachings. And so if you could imagine John as a spiritual father, he's writing not only to refute these false claims, these false teachings, but he wants to encourage and strengthen and direct the church because they're like his children to him. Now imagine this, right? An early church, this young church plant that is going through suffering. They're going through um, not only physical trials through persecution of the church, right, being mocked, being jailed, tortured, executed, but now they were also going through ideological warfare, where the different worldviews and ideology and the false teachings sought to lead people astray. And John is writing, and he's concerned for them. He cares for them. He doesn't want to see them led astray. He wants them to believe and to be on guard, to be confident in what they're believing in, that they ought to be alert but they don't need to be overwhelmed. And so he talks about how they can be confident when they approach God. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. When you are vouching for someone, isn't it the case where the more you know them, the more confident you are in them? The more you know them, the more confident you are in them, and the more hearty of an endorsement you can give. Isn't that why we ask for recommendations for plumbers or electricians or mechanics when we're looking for someone to help us or why we check Yelp to see how many stars a particular restaurant has and it's not enough that they have five stars we need them to have many reviews and we have to read these reviews and these reviews have to be written by Yelp elite people right you know we have uh, this past week we were at a conference and one of our staff members uh, our children's pastor uh, Pastor Rachel, she is a Yelp elite and so she took us to all these different restaurants and we're like okay we trust you because you have this badge, uh, Yelp Elite. But isn't it the case where if you have, um, the more you get to know a person or the more um, you know, confidence you have, the more of an endorsement you can give. And I think this, when we look at John and when we look at what has happened, see John, again, he says, I am an eyewitness. I was with Jesus. And John is writing to these churches in his old age. It's been decades since he's been with Jesus, but he was one of the disciples. He followed Jesus. And in his old age, he's saying, this is true, and this is trustworthy. We can have confidence in Jesus. We can have confidence when we approach Jesus. See, he is this old man that has reflected on the goodness of God, and he's saying, now come and taste and see who this Jesus really is. Now, as children of God, what can we have confidence in? What does it mean to be a child of God who is confident in uh, our Father? And, and so let's see what John has to say in this passage. First, children have confidence that they are loved and protected by their parents. Now, I love my children. I have two and a third on the way. Um, I would do anything to protect them. Right? The feelings of love and affection and desire to protect my children as a father is only a glimpse of what the Heavenly Father feels 
towards us. See, if in my broken, limited human love as a father, I can still care greatly about the well-being of my children, how much more is our perfect, loving, eternal father feel this way about us? Now, I want to be careful not to imply that we will be protected from any kind of pain or suffering because it's quite clear that in this lifetime, we will experience pain. We will experience suffering. We will go through seasons where we ask questions and we feel like those questions are unanswered by God. This idea of pain and suffering is what causes most people to lose faith in God or to turn away from him. And so empty promises that a life with God means you will have no pain and no suffering is not helpful. It's more harm than it does good. But rather, I think we need to consider pain and suffering in light of eternity. We need to have an eternal perspective. See, I wish I could protect my daughter from every single skinned knee and every broken heart. I dread the day when she tells me about her first boyfriend and, you know, the broken heart if she experiences it. I want to protect her from all of that. And yet, I realize that if I were to try and prevent pain and suffering, I would need to lock her up in a room and just control her every single moment, movement. But by do- doing so, I would be destroying her. I would be ruining her life. I would be robbing her personhood. Yes, pain and suffering is painful. But I know that the length of the pain, the brevity of pain, will not last forever. And I think, too, that in light of eternity with Jesus, the brevity of our suffering and pain will be but a distant memory when sin and death is no longer. So that's the confidence that we can have, that we are loved and protected by our eternal loving Father. Second, children also have confidence that they will be provided for. That their, their parents, that if they ask for something that they need, their parents will do whatever they can to provide. If I could give my children anything in the world that was also good for them, I would do it in a heartbeat. I wouldn't hold back. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about the heart of the Father. And he actually asks the listeners to consider the decency of human fathers. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I love it how he says, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts. It's like, thanks a lot, Jesus. I I feel like I'm a pretty good father. But this hyperbolic statement, he's saying, if even the best human fathers compared to the glory and the goodness and the perfect, loving, and compassionate, and merciful Father, if the human Father in all his goodness is considered evil, how much more will the Father above care for us, provide for us, give us what we need? Now, it's important to understand that as children, sometimes we ask for things that aren't always good for us. Even if in the moment we're convinced we can't live without it, but the heart of the Father is to provide for his children. The heart of the father is to take the children's best interests in mind. And as we ask according to his will, he will respond to us. He hears us and he provides for us. That's our confidence. You and I can have confidence that our father in heaven hears us and provides for us. Third, children also have confidence in the fact that they have access to the father. One of my favorite quotes is from Tim Keller, who is a pastor in New York, and he says, The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. 
a couple nights ago, my daughter woke me up. Um, she misplaced a drawing. I don't know why she was thinking about a drawing in the middle of the night, but she was like knocking on our door, and you know, we've, we've trained her so that she doesn't knock really loud. She'll just kind of tap at the door, like really quiet. And you know, I don't know like how long she's been tapping, but I'll just wake up. And my, my wife, she wears earplugs, so she doesn't hear her at all. And, but you know, whatever the problem is, I still just get up like really quickly when I hear it, and I go answer the door. I, I might be groggy and I may, may be tired, but if she has a bad dream or if her bug bite itches or if she misplaced something or she just has a question and I may not be happy if she just has a very trivial question asked, but I will still respond to her. She has access to me. Now, I can confidently say that I will not answer you at 3 a.m. in the morning if you have a bug bite or if you have a bad dream. You know, I will not answer to you because you're not my children. <laughs> but that is, the, that is the access that we have to the Father. We have access to our Heavenly Father. Um, As children of God, not only does the Holy Spirit reside in us, but we have access to the Father. We can speak to Him through prayer. He hears us and responds to us. Through prayer, we have direct access to Him, and we can have confidence in that. We see in our passage, John urges us to pray for one another, especially when it comes to those who are Uh, going astray. And verse 16 says, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. Now in the context of loving our brothers and sisters, prayer is one of the things that we must do. It's one of the most loving things that we can do. I was chatting with a a sister a few weeks ago and she was telling me at the church she was at before, uh, she was part of a small group where they were praying for one of their members' friends for many years. I, I forget how many years she said, but many years. And I don't know, years later, this person came to the church. And uh, it was uh, remarkable because all the, the people uh, that were part of that small group, they were like, oh, we've been praying for you for years. And she was just overwhelmed because of all the people that have been praying. And I, I was so convicted and challenged. Like, you know, I don't know if I would pray seven to ten years for, for a single person um, that I didn't even know. And here, these people, they really cared and, and loved, and that expression of their love was through intercession and through prayer. And I was challenged by this idea of being more persistent in praying for one another. You know, one of the things we start doing regularly at our staff meeting is we are starting to go down a list of people who attend our church and just reaching out to see how we can pray for them. And it's been such a privilege to hear uh, the prayer requests, the, the, the people that have shared very openly um, the struggles that they're going through, their, their prayer needs. And, you know, as we've been praying, I feel like I've been getting to know people uh, more even through their prayer requests. And, you know, I, I just want to encourage us, many of us, we may not feel like we really need prayer, but I want you to know you and I, we need prayer. We need prayer. We need uh, the prayer of the saints. We need, um, we need to understand the value of intercession and prayer. You know, I've been blessed to have a mother and a mother-in-law who um, are faithful intercessors. They pray for me every single, or pray for our family every single day. And even though I've seen it, I, I value it, but admittedly, I don't think I've truly understood the weight of it, of having prayer covering until the past few years. Perhaps it's the challenges and trials of life that become larger and more in your face than ever before. Health issues, financial issues, relational issues, these cracks that become more and more apparent over time. 
Maybe it's the added pressure of responsibility that as you get older, the responsibility of raising children, of loving your spouse, of being productive employees or being a, a good boss, of being faithful to your friends and family members. There's just so much that you, you start feeling so um, just responsible over. Um, but you get to this point, and I'm at this point where I'm realizing that there's so many areas that I can't just will myself through anymore. I can't just push through and just suck it up and keep going. But I really need to come to God and surrender and say, Lord, I, I need your strength. I need your help. And more than that, I need people to pray for me. I need to be able to share and receive prayer in that way. In the weighty things and in the small things, we need to lift one another up in prayer. As we head into a new season of community groups, I want to challenge us to be a people of prayer regularly lifting each other up in our prayers and intercession. And I know that it takes time for us to be able to show, uh, share very openly and vulnerably with one another. Not all of us are ready to share our struggles and the cracks in our lives. And we might hide, we might dodge and, uh, and, and be unwilling to share our true prayer requests, but I pray that we would be able to get to this point where we can be real and vulnerable with one another where we do value a prayer and intercession as greater than the image that we want to project to one another. So we see in this passage, John is encouraging us to pray. He says, pray for one another, particularly, he says, for those that are going astray. And let's be intentional about doing that in our communities. Now, verse 16 continues on and says, I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because John seems to point to this idea that there is sin that leads to death, and that there is sin that does not lead to death. And this is kind of confusing and maybe a little contrary to us, because we've come to understand that all sin leads to death. Right? Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Now I've been pondering this uh, this this part of the passage a bit. And to give a very technical definition of sin, this Greek word that's used here, hamartia, it literally means missing the mark. It's a failure to hit the mark, this standard. Whatever mark or standard that God has set for us, has required for us, we have all failed. We have all missed the mark. The Bible teaches us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can say we are sinless. None of us can say we are guiltless or blameless. But I think here what we need to differentiate is, is the condition of sin and the act of sin. The condition of sin and the act of sin, we often conflate these two, but when we talk about the condition of sin, we're talking about this Romans passage where it says, the wages of sin is death. That Jesus came in the flesh to make atonement for our sin, to reconcile us to the Father. I've heard sin explained as a spiritual disease, equivalent to a physical disease like cancer that ultimately leads to a physical death. Sin is like a spiritual disease that leads to a spiritual death, the eternal separation from our loving Father. That's the condition of sin. But when we talk about the act of sin, we're talking about a particular instance or an expression of sin. And so if I were to use this in a sentence to describe the act of sin, I would say, you have sinned against me. What am I saying by that? I'm saying that you have committed an offense or a violation. You've done something to wrong me. And I think this is what John is talking about. He's not talking about the condition of sin, but the act of sin. And from John's letter, what we see is that sin, the sin that he's most concerned about are the three points that I mentioned in our recap. Right? First, 
not believing that Jesus has come in the flesh as the Messiah who would save us from our sins. That's the first thing he's concerned about. Secondly, not pursuing holiness, but giving ourselves to the passions and the lust of our flesh. Uh, thirdly, not loving our brothers and sisters. Those are the three that he's mainly concerned about as he's writing to these churches. Now, in my understanding of sin, though all wrongdoing is sin, not all sin has the same consequence or the same uh, severity. Okay, though, all wrongdoing, all, though all wrongdoing is sin, not all sin are alike. They don't have the same consequence. They don't have the same severity. See, lying to your parents is simply not the same as committing first-degree murder. The consequences are drastically different. The punishment that's doled out ought to be drastically different. And so we see that there, even within sin, there's a spectrum of the severity of sin, of the, 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 the way that it impacts those around us. There's a difference in these expressions of sin. But we also see that sin is kind of like a, a snow, there's a snowball effect, that sin paves the way for greater sin uh, in, to happen. And one commentary puts it this way. It says, therefore, John is not describing just a sin that can be committed accidentally or even in a moment, yet all sin is gradual. No one reaches full degradation overnight. Rather, every sin paves the way for deeper and greater sin. Thus, John calls for believers to pray for one another, lest anyone be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, so that he eventually turns away from Christ and goes out from the company of the redeemed, proving that he was never truly saved. And how true is that? All sin is gradual. Every sin paves the way for deeper and greater sin. I would also add that different expressions of sin um, hardens our heart faster than others. Some expressions of sin are more destructive to us or to those around us. And so we need to treat those with more scrutiny, with more severity in terms of dealing with it. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if you have anyone in your life who will confront you about sin in your life, but I cannot stress enough that we need people who will keep us accountable who will love us in this way, encourage us towards a life of godliness, knowing the severity of sin, knowing how dangerous unchecked sin can be. And I just get the sense that when John is writing this, he's not writing to put down the people, but he really desires the church to approach sin in a healthy way, that, that, that we would encourage one another towards a life of godliness, that we would pray for one another, that we would not become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And as we enter a new year of community groups, let's be people that love one another in this way, that build real relationships, that pray for one another, that challenge and confront one another towards a life of godliness, loving one, another's, loving one another to that end. Lastly, John brings up this idea of counterfeit gods, and he ends this letter rather abruptly, in my opinion. He has a simple command in verse 21. He says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, in the verses before, we see that there are two forces that are at play. There's God, and then there's Satan, who John calls the evil one. Verse 18 says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. 
So we see there are two forces at play here. There's God and there is the evil one. And in John chapter 10, verse 10, uh, in his gospel, he says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life, that they may have it to the full. So we see that the, the agenda of Satan is to kill, steal, and destroy. His aim is to bring destruction and oppose the agenda of God, which is to give life, fullness of life that we were meant to experience. And from this context of the letter where John is talking about the false spirits, he talks about the spirit of the Antichrist, the false teachers, the ideologies and worldviews. And if I were to lump all these together, he's saying that these actors, their agenda is of the evil one. It is to lead you down a path towards death and destruction. But the agenda of God, however, is life. God desires to give us life, and not just an average life, but to have the fullness of life that was intended for humanity. To lead us towards life that is not just reserved for the future, towards the new heaven and earth, but for the here and now. To have fullness of life even today. A pastor named John Ortberg, he puts it this way. He said, the kingdom of God is now available. available. And if you want to, you can come right on in and live in it. It is tragic that the gospel of Jesus has been substituted for another cheaper, powerless gospel, what might be called the gospel of minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. See, so often the gospel is treated as the gospel of minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when we die, but there's a fullness of life that Jesus came and he said, I want you to live this life, the, the fullness of life that was intended for you, that the very minute, the very moment you step into the kingdom of God, you can experience the fullness of life. The very moment you have come under the lordship and kingship of Jesus, you can experience the full breadth of life that the evil one has come to kill, steal, and destroy. But what is this life? What is this fullness of life that we are to experience when we come under the lordship and kingship of Jesus? I think one aspect is from Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is Jesus talking about here? What is Jesus talking? It's beautiful imagery if we actually understand what Jesus is getting at. Now, I, I believe none of us or most of us are not familiar with the agricultural world, so we really have no idea or little idea of what a yoke is. I was reading about yokes, and I came across this very insightful teaching from this author called Janet Pope. And she explains how a yoke is a wooden frame that is placed at the neck of two animals for the purpose of pulling a cart or a plow or a heavy load. Now, see, the yoke isn't needed, uh, sorry, the yoke is needed so that the two animals can work together in order to pull this load. See, if the load wasn't heavy, there's no need for a yoke. The animal can do it by itself. It doesn't have to be yoked along with another uh, animal. Uh, but typically, as they're training these oxen, what they would do is they would pair a young and inexperienced oxen with an older trained oxen. They would yoke those two together. And did you know that an untrained ox can pull upwards of 2,000 pounds by themselves? 2,000 pounds they can pull easily by themselves. A trained ox, on the other hand, can pull 5,000 pounds by themselves. But together, they can pull more than the 7,000 pounds that we would you know, add together. They can pull up to 10,000 pounds. 
Eventually, when the untrained ox becomes trained together, they can pull up to 15,000 pounds together. So when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he's saying, come and take my yoke and walk and step with me. If you yoke yourself to me, if you place this yoke upon your neck and walk step and step with me, I will take the brunt of the weight. I will lead the way. See, Jesus is the older trained ox that we are yoked to as we learn from him. In Jewish culture, yoke also had a double meaning. It meant teaching. The students or the disciples of the rabbi, the teacher, they would take the yoke of the rabbi upon themselves. And so Jesus was saying, let me teach you how to truly live life. Take my teaching upon you. Let me train you in the way that leads to fullness of life. Yes, the burdens of life are heavy. Are you feeling weary? Are you feeling tired? Are you feeling buried carrying this all by yourself? You don't have to carry this proverbial load of life all alone. But yoke yourself to me. Attach yourself to me. Learn from my teaching that leads towards fullness of life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he's saying, I will teach you the truth. I will show you the way. I will give you real life. Here's the thing about yokes. It makes independence impossible. You can't just go your own way. So when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, it's an invitation to rest. It's an invitation towards a lighter load, but it's also an invitation to die to die to yourself, to die to what you believe is the best for your life now. It's a death to independence and an agreement, a yes to dependence on him. Now here's the thing. This is where we often get messed up or we get it mixed up. We think that following Jesus, that he's going to take our burden away. But you'll find that the burden of life is still there. It's not light because you will no longer need to carry the burdens. As if Jesus can magically make all of the worries and stress and burden of life disappear. But it is light because of the one who carries it with us. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Come and die so that you may truly live, live life to the fullest. And I want that. I want to experience that for myself. Before I invite someone to experience that life, I want to experience that for myself. I want you to experience. I want us as a church to really experience the fullness of this life that Jesus says is offered to you and me. In our passage and in this letter, John is imploring you and me. He says, choose life. Don't be fooled by the deceitfulness of sin, the allures of the idols of your day. But he says, choose life with Jesus. Now, John's final words in this letter is to keep themselves from idols, and it's not only relevant to them, but to us as well. Idols are not a thing of the past. They may have worshipped carved images made out of wood and stone that we might think no longer applies to us, but think about what these idols represented. Okay, they worshipped these gods and these idols, and they were pleading with these gods. One of the main things was that they would have a good harvest. In fact, one of the major gods of Ephesus was Artemis. And the temple of Artemis is actually one of the seven wonders of the world. But one of the main characteristics of Artemis was that she protected fertility. Now, that was really important for an agricultural society because fertile land was important. If there was no rain, if the land was not fertile, they would not be able to survive. They would not be able to harvest. And so their sustenance depended on fertility. Their sustenance also depended on their own personal fertility, the offspring that they were able to produce. 
They didn't have a social security system. They didn't have welfare. Their social security system was their children that would provide for them as they got older, that would work the land. And so as they were crying out for fertility, as they were worshiping these idols and these gods, they're asking for fertility. But think about what these idols represented. Not just fertility, but they're asking for power, for safety, for comfort, success, victory in times of war. Now, wouldn't you say those are things that we long for as well? That in our day and age, those are things that we look for as well. Now, our world may no longer worship Artemis, but let's be honest, there are many idols that we turn to represent, uh, that we turn to that represent the very same thing. So we see idols have not ceased. They've just changed names. They have just changed forms throughout the years. Idols that have morphed into ideologies, attractive things of our day that cause us to have a disordered love, where we exalt other things above God. Wealth, prosperity, safety, comfort, career success, academic success, money, power, sexual intimacy. A few weeks ago, we talked about how these things are not bad in and of themselves, but when they are disordered, and exalted above God. If they were planets in a, orbit, in a uh, solar system, when they're out of order, when they're out of their orbit, they end up colliding into another. They just end up creating a mess. This morning as I was um, looking over the sermon, I was just thinking, wow, phones have become our idols. Is it not the first thing that you turn to when you wake up and the last thing that you see before you close your eyes? If you wake up and you're, the first thing you do is you look at your stock portfolio, maybe wealth is your idol. If the last thing you do is scrolling through social media, maybe entertainment or your image, I don't know whatever it may be, but that may be your idol. And we see how these things, we don't really treat it as idols, but they are idols nonetheless. They represent to us what these gods represented to them as well. They are idols that destroy us and enslave us. Here's the thing about idols. Idols also invite us to take their yoke upon us. They beckon us to come and place their yoke upon our necks and to walk in step with them. But these idols, they promise to lighten our load, but they cannot. They are harsh masters. They are dead weights that end up creating more burden and more anxiety and stress and weight on our lives. Their yoke is difficult and their burden is heavy. So brothers and sisters, let me remind us this morning, do not be deceived. As John would say, keep yourselves from idolatry. Choose the way of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, the fullness of life that he says is available for you and me. As we wrap up this morning, um, let me just come back to the, the three main points of this letter. And hopefully the repetition just really helps this stick uh, as we ponder these three areas. Having the right belief, having the right action, having the right posture, having the right beliefs and the discernment between what is true and what is false, that even when we look at the idols of our lives, I pray that the Spirit of God would give you discernment and clarity and vision to see just how destructive idols can really be, that the Holy Spirit would show you the truth about the fullness of life that Jesus has to offer. Like, I can tell you about it, but only if you give yourself to it can you really experience it for yourself. Our actions that prove our faith, 
right? The actions that produce fruit in our lives must be a reflection of our faith in Jesus, that there is a congruence, that there is an integrity in our lives, that when we invite others to this life that Jesus has to offer, that we ourselves are trying and we're striving and we're practicing so that we can follow after him and that there's congruence. Again, John uses this phrase, anyone can claim. He uses that multiple times, and that's true for us as well. We live in a society where you can say anything. You can claim anything. But he's saying, you and I, our beliefs, uh, our actions must reflect our beliefs. We are confident in our status as children of God, and we want that integrity and cohesiveness to characterize every fiber of our being, and not just remaining in our heads or our hearts, but in the way we live our lives. And John's focus throughout the letter, again, life of holiness and pursuit of love. Lastly, uh, this love that he talks about, his main thesis I would, I would propose is love. Live a life pursuing love. We remember that love is a process. It's being worked out inside of our lives. And when we abide in his love, when we experience his love for ourselves, we, are, uh, we demonstrate and we emulate this love. We understand that as, as children, as beloved, we, have, uh, we are loved and protected, that we are provided for, that we have access to the Father simply because we are children of God. And that we also, again, remember that loving God and loving one another is tied together. They are inseparable. I pray that we would be people that experience God's deep love for us, that we would sit in that love and that we would emulate that love to one another, to our city, to the nations. Kairos, it's been a privilege to go through 1 John with you all, and I know some of you, this is the first sermon on 1 John, but it really has been such a great time just studying this book together. I've personally been so blessed um, learning alongside all of you just what it means to be um, people of God, followers of Jesus, becoming more like him, loving one another's. But here comes the hard part. See, it's one thing to Wow, the lights just turned on. Uh, it's one thing to just believe it or one thing to hear it and learn it, but another thing to practice it. <laughs> and, and this is the hard part, right? Practicing it, living it out. We're going we're gonna to stumble. We're going to make mistakes. But we can be confident that we have a Father who loves us and leads us and guides us. So let's put into practice the things that we've learned and the convictions of our heart. And I think that's my cue that, is that the cue that time's up? But worship team, come on up. Let's prepare, let's prepare our hearts as we uh, prepare for offering and response. Let's just come before the Lord, whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is bringing to the surface. Just ask the Holy Spirit, what is it that you are speaking? Maybe it's an area of your life that, that God is confronting you about, that there is incongruence, that there's no integrity in the way that you profess and the way that you live. Maybe the Holy Spirit wants to lovingly draw that out and, and, and lead you towards the fullness of life. Or maybe it is that God is placing in your heart a burden to pray and to intercede for someone. Or maybe it is to share with one another, to be vulnerable in the way that we ask for prayer. We do have a prayer team right out here, um, right after service. If you would like prayer, please come and receive prayer. I don't know what it is that God is doing in your life, but I pray that the Holy Spirit would bring these things up. And let's just take one minute, if we could just have one minute. Let's just close our eyes and let's just say, search me, O God. Search me, O God, and know my every thought. Reveal to me um, just what, what it is that you are speaking, what it is that you are leading me towards, what it is that you want to 
um, shed light on. And as we come before God, let's invite the Holy Spirit to minister to us in that way.